2: I'm Alice Su, the Economist Senior China Correspondent based in Taipei. And I'm here with my co-host, David Rennie, the Economist Beijing Bureau Chief.
3: The whole world is feeling the after effects of COVID, but nowhere had a policy quite like China's zero COVID. And now the Communist Party has declared that its pandemic controls created a miracle in human history. Today, we're asking, are there any scars that remain from that zero covid strategy.
2: To answer that question, we've had four of us from the China team fanned out across the country and elsewhere in Asia to hear from people in the cities with the harshest lockdowns and to talk with them about the economic impact and the human legacy of this pandemic.
3: This is Drumtown.
2: From The Economist.
3: Hi Alice. How are you? And what have you been up to this week?
2: Hi, David. It's good to see you. It's only been one week away from Drum Tower, but I feel like it's been a really long time. I have been out reporting in Turkey, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but I'm now back in Taiwan and I really enjoyed listening to your Hutong guided walk episode. So thank you for holding down the fort. You're welcome. How are you? What have you been up to?
3: I have discovered that I am extraordinarily dumb. Oh! Uh, because you'll remember, Alice, that three weeks ago I told you I'd learned the Chinese for that I'd sprained my wrist. Mm. It was hurting so much I went to the doctor. It turns out that Uh, but I didn't actually realise oh. for three weeks.
2: Oh, what? Your bone is broken. Yeah, I broke my it's arm. Fracture.
3: Oh, I broke my arm. Clean break. So oh, I now no. have a cast and uh, and a very very annoyed doctor. Yeah.
2: Are you wearing it right now?
3: I'm wearing it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: (laughs) We've been recording and this first time I just saw it. I'm so sorry.
3: It's all right. Uh, It's mostly I'm very stupid because uh, as my doctor did point out, you are not meant to wait three weeks before getting a broken arm put in a cast.
2: And like get on the train, go to the Russia border, go all over China, (laughs) record things for the podcast.
3: All that good stuff.
2: Well, I hope you recover soon. So I am really excited to get into this episode because we'll have two of our other China correspondents on the podcast, and all four of us have been asking the same question, which is now that zero COVID has been lifted, are there any lingering effects on this country and on its people? And David, you just went to Wuhan where the pandemic began, and you went because there was a breaking news story about protests by pensioners. Was that also a COVID-related story?
3: That's a good question. And the answer is no and yes. So first things first, these protests happening in Wuhan and a couple of other cities, they're about the public health insurance scheme used by hundreds of millions of Chinese who live in cities. And basically, the government is putting more money into a bit of a scheme that pays for things like hospital stays for bad, serious illnesses, and less money into going to the pharmacy or a doctor for minor ailments. And people feel that they're being robbed of their entitlement. And so that's why you've seen hundreds of pensioners turning out. And I went to a park uh, right in the centre of the city, Zhongshan Park, where we had two big protests in the space of a week and actually pensioners taken away and kind of threatened by the police in some cases. It was pretty calm. When I went, people were practising opera in these kind of nice pavilions in the park. But plenty of old people were willing to talk about why they were upset with this policy change. And whether this was about COVID or not. And some said, no, it's really nothing to do with COVID at all. This is about a health insurance thing. Others go, well, you know, if the government is making cuts, that is, of course, because they spent so much money on three years of zero COVID. And my lesson from that is it's really important not to be too simple and neat about what is happening in China at the moment. And you're seeing a lot of reporting mostly from outside China that there's a wave of revolt sweeping China. You get on the ground, it's more complicated than that. And you can't see every sign of discontent as a rebuke of Xi Jinping's leadership. But people are definitely fed up. And they are partly fed up because the end of zero COVID was brutal. One of the people I met was a woman who just retired as a bus driver. She's about 50. And she said, we have to understand if the elderly are very upset right now because so many of them died at the end of COVID. And so they have a right to express themselves. And we need to empathize with that. But we also need to understand the policy announced by the central government because she actually supports this big reform.
2: You know, she sounds a bit wistful actually when she talks about the elderly and she's like, They should have a chance to express themselves. And I think that kind of speaks to the mood of the country, right? Um, David, you were saying, you know, not everything is about zero COVID and definitely not everything is about criticizing the government or certainly not the central government or Xi Jinping. But also there is this general mood of everyone has just gone through a lot of loss and trauma and the country is a little bit on edge in that way.
3: This is a country that's had a one-party system for as long as anyone can remember. And so it's been traumatized in ways that people acknowledge, but that doesn't mean that they're staging an anti-government revolt. And that's an opening for the Communist Party to say, you know, let's move on and congratulate ourselves for how well we handled this.
2: Right. And actually, as we heard on the news recently, the party actually did announce at a Politburo Standing Committee meeting that COVID is over. And in fact, they said in a very triumphant way that their policy has been a decisive victory and a miracle in the history of human
0: civilization.
3: So plenty of people in Wuhan, where the pandemic began, were ready to heed that call to move on and focus on the future. But Across the whole of China, as I've been traveling, when I ask people about the economy and the chances of recovery, I am struck by the fact that their confidence is fragile. When the world thinks about the pandemic in China, I guess there's two episodes above all that stand out. One is the beginning in the city of Wuhan, but then you had that really tough lockdown at the beginning of 2022 in Shanghai, China's business capital.
2: So let's just remind ourselves what was happening last year in the spring in Shanghai which is when the highly transmissible Omicron variant began to tear through China— So Shanghai is this vast hub for manufacturing, shipping, and international travel. It's also China's most glitzy, glamorous, international city. It was hit by the Omicron variant and the city suddenly was locked down. And initially the government said it would only be for a few days, but it went on for two full months where people were confined to their homes and to their apartments for days on end and often running out of food. And for me, it was particularly personal because I consider Shanghai one of my home cities. I went to high school there. It's like a place that I associate with a lot of fun. So it was surreal to see this global mega city turned into a place where people were at home, swiping their phones, trying to fight with others to get orders of food and trying to figure out how long they should save their last egg or potato or can of Coca-Cola in many ways, it was quite dystopian. And David, you'll remember that there was this video that went viral of this drone that was flying over a residential compound at one point. And it was warning residents to literally suppress your soul's desire for freedom and to not open their windows. <laughs> I mean, when I saw that, I just thought, this looks like it's coming out of a sci-fi movie. It's one of those situations in China where it's like magical realism. You know, something is happening and you're like, is this real? <laughs> like, how can this really be? But If someone
3: put that in a script, it would get cut right for being too unrealistic.
2: Yeah, too absurd. It's like, how could that really happen? Um, but it did. And the situation varied from neighborhood to neighborhood, how much food you could get and when you could get it. It really depended on your connections and your community's connections. But in many places, soon they were running out of things to eat and people started screaming for from their windows saying that they needed supplies. And later on, there was this video that Chinese netizens compiled. It was called April's Voices, and it went viral. And it was this montage of all the different ways that Shanghai residents were struggling during the lockdowns and kind of these individual tragedies that happened. There was this one clip that had the voice of a truck driver saying how he had volunteered to deliver food, but then he got stuck for hours on the outskirts of the city.
0: (laughs) 谁也没的喝,上海有小小妹夫有没有?
2: You hear the truck driver saying, I've been here since 4 a.m. And do you want all these vegetables to rot? Are there any stores open in Shanghai? I'm here to help. I'm trying to help. And I volunteered for this. And, you know, I just remember that whole lockdown as a time of incredible humanity. A lot of people actually doing their best to try to help one another out, but also an incredibly kind of callous disregard from the state that just continued it as long as they needed to or, or wanted to. But Don Weinland, who is the economist, China business and finance editor, was in Shanghai throughout that entire lockdown. And he's actually here with us on Drum Tower today. Don, hello. Hi, Alice. So, Don, you had only just moved to Shanghai in March 2022, just in time to see this wealthy, diverse city go into lockdown. What was that like for you and for the people around you?
0: Arriving here at that time was a huge shock. I have never experienced anything like it before basically you're completely reliant on the state for what you eat and for what you can do every day you know whether or not you can go outside i had it relatively easy i think but it was a very bleak place to be in early last year i mean people complained about not having enough food some people ran out of water a lot of this footage was scrubbed off the chinese internet very quickly but you know there were protests around the city People would go out on the street and question the legality of keeping people in their homes for such a long period of time. Unfortunately, every once in a while, you would see a picture or a video footage of somebody leaping off of a building. It was definitely a traumatic experience for many, many people here.
2: You know, Don, I always remember this one interview I did with someone in Shanghai at that point, And he was kind of a white-collar professional who told me something I thought was very, very Shanghai. He said, In the past, we only thought about freedom as something that we would discuss while drinking a glass of red wine. But now we know why it really matters.
3: So Don, Shanghai is now back. We're told that China is back as a global business hub. But as you look at businesses around you, how has the lockdown really impacted those businesses?
0: The mood on the street here right now is very good. I mean, there's kind of an exuberance. People have just emerged from First, the lockdowns, and then a wave of COVID. Restaurants are open, so there's a great vibe in the air right now. That's kind of the surface picture. Once you start talking to people, it's not hard to figure out that lots of people suffered. So I was thinking about the types of businesses that were most impacted by the lockdown. Gym owners got hit very, very hard. I spoke with a gym owner by the name of Chen Dong, This guy is in his mid-30s. He's a new father. He's been running his gym for about five to six years. Seems like he's still kind of learning the ropes of of business. And his gym seems like it mainly caters to locals here. He's actually become quite well-known online. People like to tune in and watch his online workout sessions. So I I think you could say he's uh, Wang Hong. Popular on the internet. He told me a lot about what it was like in the early days of COVID. The second half of 2020 and most of 2021 was quite good. Businesses did relatively well, and, and his gym did quite good. So, we
1: going
2: Wow. So he's even saying there that, you know, his gym did so well, he was looking to expand into a second location in 2021.
0: Yeah. And this might be hard for some people in the West to understand, you know, how good a zero COVID was looking in 2021.
3: And that's the story of the pandemic. I mean, you know, I was here for the whole of the pandemic and it was like a giant glass dome had been placed over China. And although it was incredibly cut off from the rest of the world, As you say, Don, for a lot of the beginning of the pandemic, once they got that first wave under control, life within that giant glass dome was remarkably normal. But what a kind of unbelievable exercise in kind of business planning. If cash flow is a worry for any business, how do you try and plan when you have periods of complete normality and then months on end where you're not allowed to open?
0: Yeah. So that's the way that a lot of business owners thought about the lockdowns. I mean, their ability to plan their futures just kind of disappeared. One thing that he described, and I also experienced here in Shanghai in 2022, is after the lockdown, the local policy was just incredibly unpredictable. So you didn't know when your business was going to be shut down. And this continued until the policy was abandoned in December.
3: Was there ever a moment... When your gym owner Chen Dong doubted that
0: his business might even survive? He told me every day he, he thought about this. You know, I think his company got quite close to just giving up. Dang, I
1: don't know. I 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 don't know.
2: Well, that's actually a really um, compassionate comment that he made because he just says, yeah, you know, lockdown was difficult, and every day I was thinking about whether my business would survive. But the hardest part was in November and December when the policies were constantly shifting, and I don't know if my employees are going to be able to work, if they're going to be affected. then, Then that was actually the most difficult part when he felt like he didn't see any light ahead.
3: And how does he feel about the coming year and the future?
0: He is surprisingly optimistic, although I would say cautiously optimistic. And I feel a lot of people here are reflecting that type of sentiment. He says that if he continues with business the way that things are right now, you know, China does not revert to some form of zero COVID, which I think is highly unlikely. He should have a pretty good outlook in the second half of 2023 and into 2024.
2: It's encouraging to hear that his outlook is positive, and it says something not only about Mr. Chen feeling that his business can survive, but also his clients must feel confident enough in their economic future that they can spend money on going to the gym. But Donna, I do want to hear, this is Mr. Chen's story about his business, but what about the bigger picture of China's economy? How much long-term impact do you think Zero COVID has had on China's domestic economic health and also on foreign investors' attitudes towards China?
0: The feeling right now is quite good here in Shanghai. As I said, I think one thing to keep in mind is that Places like Shanghai, Shenzhen, Beijing, these are the wealthiest places in China, and there are people that can survive without having a job for a year. One of the realities of zero COVID or the after effects of zero COVID is that lots of people lost their jobs. Lots of people lost their businesses. They are not as well off as they were a year ago. So whether or not those people are going to be able to get back on track, find employment or in the position of a business owner, whether or not they can find people to come in and work for them. These are questions that are all kind of up in the air. And there's a lot of problems with this across the country, not just in wealthy places like Shanghai. Recently, the Chinese government has put out some very encouraging foreign direct investment numbers, but zero COVID has definitely changed the way that a lot of foreign investors look at China. So everybody's very happy that it's over. But, you know, the decision making process that brought you zero COVID is still in place, obviously.
2: Well, that was just so insightful. And thank you so much, Don. I hope we will have you on Drum Tower again very soon.
0: No worries. Uh, Please have me on more often. All my friends love Drum Tower, and they keep asking me when I'm going to be on. I'm like, I don't know, I don't know, but here we go. So yeah.
3: So Alice, I'm sure we're going to have Don on again because that story of whether China really does recover from zero COVID quickly is going to be one of the big stories of 2023. One of the other things that that reminds us is that after China intervened in the economy and in people's lives in once unthinkable ways. They were quite open that sometimes this was an opportunity to get stuff done that the Communist Party had always wanted to do. And we'll be back in a moment to look at a different city that had one of the toughest and longest lockdowns of any in China.
2: Right. And that is going to be great when we have our other colleague on. But first, David, I wanted to ask you a question from subscribers. And our producers have asked me to do this. It's a question we we get a lot. Could you explain why you pronounce COVID as COVID?
3: Uh, because it's written COVID it's short for coronavirus I don't say coronavirus I say coronavirus and uh, when it's written out it's COVID and it's been three years now so the other simple explanation is uh, it's not going to change now so apologies to anyone who finds it the most grating thing on this podcast
2: just because it's a repeated question that we've had and we just thought this might be our chance to get the answer So we'll be back in a moment. But first, a quick reminder that you can read more from Don and the rest of the China team each week in The Economist. In our latest edition, there are some really interesting pieces on corruption in Chinese football and China's loosening of restrictions on genetically modified corn. You'll need to be a subscriber to enjoy those stories. To sign up, visit economist.com slash drum offer.
3: Welcome back to Drum Tower. This week, we're looking at how zero COVID has changed China. The whole world heard a lot about the harshness of Shanghai's lockdown. It's a famous city filled with people with social media accounts. But there were other cities that had equally, if not worse, experiences. And there's one in particular right down on China's southern border, Rayleigh, that people outside China hardly heard about. But it had one of the most brutal lockdowns in the country. Our colleague, the Economist's China correspondent, Gabriel Crossley, has recently just come back from Raleigh. Gabriel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Gabriel, what took you to Rayleigh?
1: So the first thing to you know about Raleigh is it's a border city. On China's southern border with Myanmar, it's seen as a particular risk from COVID infections coming in from abroad. So in October 21, the Deputy Mayor, Yang Mo, said that Raleigh, standing on the border is always at risk.
3: I'm really risk.
1: Part of the reason for the risk is that the border is particularly porous, so many people have family on either side, they might well have crossed the border every so often, not necessarily officially, to see friends or family. Now Rayleigh was famous for having some of the most brutal lockdowns in China. At the beginning, it had a population of about 500,000. And according to one official, about 200,000 had left after three years of intermittent lockdowns. And one of the key measures that they brought in to try and help with this very porous border was to build a huge wall along much of the southern border.
2: Wow. Wait, they built a wall there. What does that wall look like and what was the motivation for building it?
1: You used to be able to see right into Myanmar in large parts of the border. You just kind of looked across a river and there it was. And now there's maybe seven meters high steel fence with barbed wire going up the supporting poles to stop people climbing. It's got cameras on the top and speakers which sort of repeat a message of stay away. It was erected for the reason of enforcing zero COVID. But as we saw when we visited, it's still very much there, even though zero COVID as a policy is gone. In fact, we actually visited a town which has one half in Myanmar and one half in China. And the bit of the wall which went through the middle of this town was being reinforced as we visited. They were kind of removing bits of more temporary fortification, and replacing it with tougher railings. It's really had quite an impressive effect the amount of illegal crossings have plummeted, at least according to local police.
3: And you spoke to some people whose lives have been completely changed, right? That the fence runs right through their homes, their fields. How are they responding to the idea that this thing was built in the name of zero COVID, but now the pandemic has been declared a kind of great victory and it's ended? The fence is still there and it's even being reinforced. So we met one watermelon farmer who's actually Burmese. His family
1: is largely on the Myanmar side of the wall, and he has land there as well. He used to be able to cross just by hopping across a river. That was three years ago. Now their wall is there, and he hasn't been back ever since COVID. To go back now would mean travelling for 30 kilometres in one direction, getting a permit sorted, and then going 30 kilometres in the other direction. Another farmer we talked to, though, said that the wall actually made him feel safer. He compared it to the wall along the US border with Mexico and said that, look, China has done a much better job in terms of controlling its borders than the US did. So Rayleigh is also famous for its jade industry. A lot of jade gets mined in Myanmar and then crosses the border. Um, Previously, a lot of this came over unofficially and then is sold in
3: Rayleigh.
1: So J Traders, we talked to you said that the business has been pretty badly hit in part, it seems, because now all of the jade that they're getting has to go through official ports. So jade prices have gone up quite a lot. People talked, I guess, with, with a certain amount of nostalgia about what Rayleigh used to be like. So they would talk about how you could cross the river just to have a beer with a friend. You could just move from one side of the border to the other, sell your goods, meet some friends meet your family, and not really feel like the national border impacted your life that much. I mean, of course, this was changing before COVID. The Chinese government has never particularly liked the way people could freely move across this border. But COVID really brought an end to that. And it's generally a, a less lively, sadder place to live.
2: Gabriel, so what is your takeaway on this kind of COVID legacy, this border wall we've been talking about?
1: I think they've wanted to strengthen this border for a long time. I just think they didn't have the resources to do it. The forests and the mountains and the rivers, they present a really big challenge if you're an official trying to stop crossings. Suddenly with COVID, it became a number one priority. So they sent in police officers from other provinces. They threw money at this problem. They could mobilize locals to kind of man the outposts in the forests and fight off the foreign infections Suddenly, they had all the resources they needed. And I think from the perspective of border security, this was a golden opportunity to fix a problem, which has been there for decades.
2: Amazing. That is really fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us on Drum Tower, Gabriel, and hope we'll have you again soon.
3: Thank you so much. That's so good to have Gabriel on the ground telling us about how the party's obsession with national security has been served so well by zero COVID. But I think something else he said about how many people have moved out of that city tells you how one of the reasons that maybe there's less kind of resentment and discussion of zero COVID, why it's just kind of passing out of people's memories, is that China is still a very mobile country full of migrant workers. And if one industry dies, you just kind of upsticks and move to another province. Yeah.
2: Although I was also struck by Gabriel's really quite poignant description of how much life has changed for the people who are there and maybe have their families there and have their families divided by that border wall. And it's like we all had this family separation during COVID and now zero COVID is over, but the wall remains and their separation continues.
3: Alice, you know, in other episodes, we've talked about how zero COVID was kind of a numbers game. That as long as life was pretty normal for most people in China then the party was willing to take the risk that some people in some cities were really feeling the pain of really harsh lockdowns. And it turns out that now that the Communist Party has declared its handling of the pandemic is a miracle in human history, that the same dynamic applies, that as long as most people are happy to move on, then they are hoping that everyone forgets the minority who maybe lost loved ones, uh, not even allowed to say that they died of COVID, or people who died in some of the tragedies, caused by those pandemic controls. And Alice, you were traveling to meet some of the victims and the relatives of one of the worst incidents of the pandemic lockdowns.
2: That's right, David. And, you know, of course, the incident you're referring to is this awful fire that happened in Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang, in November last year there were these people trapped inside their apartment building, locked down, and a fire started. And then there were these videos that went all over social media, catching this moment of people trapped inside, trying to escape, but unable to.
3: Alice, I remember being in Beijing for the protests sparked by that terrible fire. And one of the things that really angered the young people with me as they kind of lit candles and sang songs of kind of mourning for the dead was that press conference where officials in she seemed to blame the families and said that they didn't have the ability or the strength almost to rescue themselves as if it was their fault.
2: I remember verbatim, they said, the resident's self-saving ability is weak.
3: It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it, Alice, that months later, the Xinjiang government has never released the names of people who died in the fire, and they still are denying but refusing to investigate whether fire escapes were literally locked, that people died because zero COVID controls as in so many places involved, you know, steel bars, blocking doors, fire escapes being locked because the overwhelming priority was keeping people locked in their own homes so they couldn't spread COVID. And then they died in this terrible fire. Even if the government has not released any names of the dead, they did have names and they did have families. And Alice, you met someone who believes that his mother died in that fire.
2: David, that's right. Last week, I was in Istanbul, and I spoke with a young man named Muhammad Ali, and he is 23 years old. And he says that he used to live in that apartment that caught fire. And he learned by word of mouth that his mother, along with some of his younger siblings, died in that fire. They were living on the 19th floor. But he has no confirmation from the Chinese government on whether it's true that his mother and siblings died or whether there's any way to get in touch with them or find out more about them. And in fact, he said that he knows other Uyghurs who have family members who are in that building, but that the rest of them are not speaking to the media about it because they're afraid. And they're afraid that even acknowledging publicly that they have some connection to that building, it will bring harm to their family members who are still living
1: in Xinjiang.
3: And as we talk in this episode about the scars of zero COVID, it's hard to imagine a more agonizing example I mean, you already have so many people in China who lost elderly loved ones to the final wave of infections who weren't allowed to put COVID as the cause of death on the death certificates. But these are people, exiles, who think that their families died because they were locked in a burning home because of COVID controls. They don't know because the priority for the Communist Party is for everyone in China to forget.
2: That's right. And in fact, Muhammad told me that he was worried even those protesters who were moved by that fire to hold vigils and protest and demand change, he thinks that they've probably already forgotten about the people who actually died in it. And he actually felt quite strongly that the Han Chinese protesters who took to the streets were not really doing that for his family or for his people, this ethnic minority that has been subject to mass incarceration and and cultural erasure, he felt that they were pretty much just protesting for themselves. And he said to me, they took to the street, but that's because they started to feel that they're also threatened and that they're losing control over their own lives. But when things get better for them, you know, they forget about us.
3: I totally understand why he's not sure whether there is that much solidarity for Uyghurs, you know, from his place of exile in Turkey. I have to say that at least some of the young people near where I was on the riverbanks of that protest in Beijing the vigil for the foreigner Rumchi. they said explicitly out loud, we are all Xinjiang people now. So at least some of the young were thinking of his family. But the truth is now as the pandemic kind of recedes from people's lives, you know, when I was in Wuhan this week, Alice, more people wanted to talk about fairness and inequality. And that was what had driven their protests about that insurance policy that we began with. Several of them said unprompted that China may have problems, but it's better than America, where the freedoms are too excessive, where there's gun violence and chaos. And so the propaganda does work. But if Chinese people are feeling that society is unfair and unequal, if they are unhappy, and there is a lot of anxiety and unhappiness at the moment, and if they're worried about the state of the economy, and they're worried about government spending cuts, you can't completely separate that from zero COVID, even if people are not directly attacking Xi Jinping for the way that he handled the pandemic, it's all bound up together because there has been a loss of trust. The economy has been really seriously battered. And I think that is the visible legacy you can see now. And so that fundamental promise of Communist Party legitimacy to do with prosperity and being able to give people what they want, that is kind of in the balance now. And so you have a country that is Yes, most people wanting to move on, but the scars of zero COVID, the financial scars, but also those emotional scars that we've explored today, they are there still. And this year is going to be when we find out just how that all fits into the Communist Party's promise to deliver a better life for most people.
2: Yeah, that's right. And David, you know, you talk about the visible legacy of COVID, this country on edge and government budgets stretched and people feeling that their treatment is unequal, but there are also invisible legacies, right? And most of all, I just keep thinking about all these individual tragedies that happened that now seem to just be wiped away as if they never happened at all. And isn't that kind of how it always is when these great crises happen in China? It's the individuals who suffer, the ones who's families died or the ones who took a chance to go out on the street and then they get detained and then they disappear and we we don't know what happens to them. And everyone is asked to just forget about them and keep going. I mean, I would say that disappearance, that's a legacy that everyone is meant to ignore and pretend that they don't see and they don't care. But there are people who will keep carrying that forward, even as the country starts to move on. Thank you to everyone who has been emailing us. We have been working through the inbox and really enjoying all of your feedback. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email drum at economist.com.
3: And special thanks to listeners who, after last week's episode about the old back lanes of Beijing, shared their stories of living in a hutong, including one listener who was visited by the police at dawn after his noisy motorcycle woke up a former Chinese president who lived opposite... And if you've not listened to that episode, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Thank you for listening to Drum Tower, and we'll be back next week.
3: Our editor is Poppy Seabag-Montefiore. Alicia Burrell and Barclay Brown produced this episode. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim, and music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell.